Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. Picture, if you will, Miami's North Beach, a low-key, mellow residential area with mid-century architecture. Just steps from the beach on Ocean Terrace is the Broadmoor Hotel, and it is the first stop to the coolest immersive theater adventure. It's called Miami Motel Stories, a critically acclaimed series of short plays that tells the authentic personal stories of Miami's diverse neighborhoods inside remodel-ready hotels and motels. The Juggernaut Theater Company, led by founder and artistic director Tanya Bravo and her sister Natasha Bravo, produces it. I asked Natasha how the concept of immersive theater combined with historic storytelling came about. Well, that would be a better question for my sister because she has the theater background um, and she went to see a show in, um, I believe it's in the Lower East Side, um, and it was an immersive experience. So she had that kind of in her mind and was kind of coming back from the corporate world into the theater world again, but figuring out kind of how she wanted to do it. She was acting before. She's friends with Juan C. Sanchez, who's our resident playwright, and he had just finished a show called Paradise Motel, which was the history, but it was in one room one motel room. So then they kind of connected and we all basically came up with like, okay, well, what about kind of taking over a building where we, our audience can go into different rooms and we can tell the history of a certain neighborhood. And that started in Little Havana, the idea of Miami Motel Story. So the Barlington Group, who are the developers of um, the Tower Hotel in um, Little Havana, allowed us to use their space, and we did it guerrilla style. Uh, I mean, this was my sister and I painting, friends, anybody could come. I mean, this is a gutted building. So between Juan's uh, images and interviews and the writing, the, the soul of this motel came out right lo and behold you get this 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 amazing journey this is miami motel stories north beach and basically right now we're in the pink track that's tanya bravo walking me through the motel rooms as the crew continues to build sets transforming each performance space into a different scene different time periods and then as we walk through pink then you'll see that we are going into blue and blue represents crime we also have yellow that represents home life, and then finally orange, which is outsiders, visitors, people from the outside coming in. So within each one of these tracks, you'll experience different time periods in the area. And since it is such an intimate um, venue, right? Uh, there's only like six to eight people that go into a room at a time. It's so important to pay attention to the details of this set. I mean, you are taking in the energy of, of the interaction that's going on all around you. Um, so it's an incredible way to kind of learn about the history mm-hmm. without knowing that you're learning, so exactly. to speak, right? Exactly. That's so the best you're, kind you're of learning. Yeah, and you're really immersed and you're sucked into where you are because it is such an intimate experience. Whoa, part of the look at that room. That room is amazing. It's like full of twine. And yes, everything. this is a very interesting room, very sort of inside of the subconscious mind of a of a man who's been brutally attacked in a park and kind of relives that over and over again, yeah. Let me take you into... Um, so do you, so how does it work? Do you find the location first and then do the research on the area and stories that relate to the area or...? Yeah, we typically find the location first. Um, you know, we work with developers who are willing to, to let us take over their space and halt the 
process of what it is that they're doing with the space um, because it needs to be uninhabited. And these are usually dilapidated buildings, so they do have stories. And mm -hmm. um, we typically start from, from the era that the building was actually built. Oh, um, okay. And then, as I said, Juan uh, Sanchez just does a deep dive into the neighborhood, spends a lot of time in the neighborhood, History Miami, doing interviews of residents past and present. Um, so he's able to kind of unveil and, 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 and bring out stories of people who maybe necessarily didn't have a voice, right, right in the community, right. which is another beautiful part of it because now we're showcasing these, these people that created this neighborhood. And even though these buildings are changing, um, it's, 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 it's a space that we are paying homage to and it's mm -hmm. gonna change over time, but it's not forgotten. And so they have, like, it's one kind of last hurrah. Is it challenging for you to produce this way? Is it, is it challenging for you to produce in these small spaces? Like, I mean, you're not producing something for a big stage theater and you have audience. What are, or is it the type of challenge where you go, yeah, bring it on, we're gonna make this work? Yeah, it's, it's I believe it's, oh, it, for the run that we've done, uh, the, the several runs, it's been a bring it on kind of thing. Because you look at this building and, yeah. You know, you think, how will we ever? But it's just like the, the team kind of comes together. And, um, and you, you know, I've learned yeah. how to install. I've learned how to do roof patching. <laughs> I have learned how to, you know, take care of leaks and like how to dialogue with like yeah. <laughs> people to get things fixed and done. And we're doing things from the ground up. It's very much guerrilla work, but that's what gives love to the space. And absolutely. I think the audience feels it when they come. Yeah, you know, absolutely. it's not a renovated building. It's not meant to look beautiful. It's meant to represent at, you know, when you walk into a space that you feel like you have traveled in time. I ran into Mary. Do you remember when Mary wasn't a total heathen? Well, we've lost her completely. She had the gall to talk to me. <laughs> Tell me that prohibition wasn't working. That somehow things are actually worse off since we became a dry state. I said, Mary, the solution isn't to vote down prohibition. On the contrary. What we need is more laws, more restrictions, more raids, more arrests. And I told her, I said, Mary, if it were up to me, I would hang them all by their filthy drunken necks for drinking away a whole week's paycheck. My wife and child go hungry at home, and I would hang you too, Mary. I would hang you for turning your back on the Lord. And this is where we meet June Raven Romero, who plays Madge, an undercover reporter who exposes the illicit activities at Miami Beach's first speakeasy, the Jungle Inn. Madge is a reporter. It's 1933. She is a conservative individual. She's fighting for the perseverance and the preservation of um, prohibition. And she strongly believes that, in Miami particularly, being such a new city and being such a new new frontier, she really wanted to conserve that air, that air of, of, of prohibition. And it just was not working. It was not working legally, it was not working socially, it was not working constitutionally. And so that this is her fight, this is her struggle. The rain these last few days has brought up the worms. Everywhere I look, worms. And I know you like worms, and I know they're good for fishing, but they're an omen, a dark omen. And I'm no mystic. I don't believe or dabble in the dark arts. I'm a devout Christian woman. But these worms, Henry, they're different. They're trouble and they taunt me. Like their distant cousin, the serpent. They bring bad luck and destruction, our destruction. The destruction of the good people of this city. And we were all there, Henry. Those of us on the right side of history. 
The Christian Woman Temperance Union, the Anti-Saloon League, we were there in fine form. A united front. But the corrupt city officials and the drunkards, they were there too, Henry. They're the real worms of a city, now putrid, consumed by, by its own poison. God, there's an ache in my heart, Henry. An ache. I think it's an interesting, she's an interesting character because there's obviously layers to her and why I'm always intrigued by people who are on the forefront of these fights. They postulate themselves to be these like heralders of, right. you know, conservatism. And there's usually always something underlying that. There's usually always something picking at those individuals deeply that makes them so compelled. So that's who Madge is. I never told you this before, Henry, but I was nervous. And just before midnight, as I ran through the mangroves, my shoes getting muddied, past the house of refuge and overwhelmed by a sensation that my life was in peril. There I was, standing in front of that two-story rustic log cabin. I slipped in when the door was open and let a guest out. They offered me a drink. It was lemonade. But not the kind we're used to. Oh, no, 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 Henry. This lemonade had a strange, foul smell and taste. I drank it. Slowly. Sip by sip. So as to not arouse suspicion. You understand. And as I felt that liquor lemonade slide down my throat and my gullet. Like battery acid. I must admit it, the drink, it uh, went to my head. I wanted to run, screaming into the wilderness, find comfort and safety. But my integrity, my morals could not be compromised. So I stayed. <laughs> Pretended to enjoy myself. That's when I ran up to the second floor with a group of loud math hyenas and there it was. A roulette wheel. I had to play, Henry. I didn't want to, but I had to for the newspaper. And just as I was drinking another drink, having a good time and losing money at the table, I never felt so, so, so horrible in my entire life. And then I left. Picked myself up and ran out the door. You remember what a nightmare I was when I came back? But you consult me. You read the Bible to me. Next day, Bobo Dean published that article. Short while later, they raided the place and shut it down. I did that. That was me. And I am prepared to do it again. Praise Jesus, my Lord and Savior. So you you grew up here, right? I did. I was born and raised here in Miami. Okay. So working, and this isn't your first time with Miami Motel. It is Surgeons. not. It's okay. my second. Okay. Yes. So um, knowing that you grew up here, and we all think we know our hometown, have mm. you learned anything specific to your hometown working with Miami Motel? Absolutely. Motel yeah. We Every time we sit down to do our first directorial sessions, it's like a history lesson. And uh, this room particularly, and a few others, a couple others, have a real 
strong historical uh, context and undertone. So it, it is fascinating to learn all these things. And, and, you know, we're such a new city relatively in the United States uh, as compared to other large metropolis areas. And it's, it's fascinating. I, I love this vehicle that they've made for entertainment, for bringing people into theater, but also to teach people about history. Yeah. Inadvertently. And, and you've been in many other performances. Um, what is it that you love about this immersive sort of experience? I think that actors are predominantly broken up into two camps, and that's you know those who love and, and, and run toward improvisational work and those who fear it. <laughs> and I think you'll find most people here love it and run toward it or want to. They want to challenge themselves like that. It is theater unlike I've ever done. Theater in a traditional sense is still compelling to me, still fun because of all its challenges independently, but this is... I mean, you have to negotiate every step of the way. There is no exact blocking here. Right. There is no exact anything because these individuals become the final character in your scene when they enter the room. And you have to negotiate that differently every time. Tell me about your journey to this point. I mean, I know you were acting as a young child. Yeah. Was it just, I don't want to say easy for you, but did it come natural? Um, you know, when I was 11 years old, I was always a good academic and I was always a good student. And, um, also, I always think it's important to mention, but I'm, I'm a trans individual and I had gender dysphoria when I was a child and it was very prevalent in my life. I just didn't know how to address it. And that sort of made its way into my schooling, my academic work. I started falling off. And then at 11 years old, I signed up for an extracurricular class and it was drama. And I walked in and they said, you know, we're doing improv. And I said, what is that? And they said, you pretend to be someone. And I said, okay, sure. So I chose a homeless older vagrant. Uh -huh. And he was drunk. At that age? Yes, like, 11. what kind of experience did you have? I don't know. I don't know. I think I pulled it out of, a, you know, an image or something I saw, right, or a right. film I saw, or perhaps some neighborhood I was in when I was a child. And I did the homeless uh, man, very drunk at that time. I was a young boy. And I remember everyone loved it. And I loved it. I didn't love just that they loved it, but I loved doing it. And so that was the ink, the seedling sort of, uh -huh. of acting. And then of course I went into scripted acting and one act plays and uh, traditional plays and um, you know, all of the um, classical works. And then now here we are, um, I've done, and also it's been interesting to navigate my acting career, my young acting career through a transition to mm -hmm. in the city like Miami. And this place, this individual company, this uh, juggernaut theater, they've given me so many opportunities to actually break through the mold and not be ticketed as some like, you know, um, token or, you know, a, a box they're checking off of. So in a sense, I mean, uh, is this like a gift? Like being trans oh. is like a gift for you to, to, to be who you are today? Totally. And to, yeah. So I mean, like, I think so, you know? Yeah. I've had to negotiate. I've had a bit of a personal struggle trying to find myself in the world of theater and performance as a woman, mm -hmm. you know? But, but through roles like this and through work like this, it's so immersive that I'm like firing on all cylinders all the time and there's no training ground like it. It's an yeah. obstacle course for actors. It's oh, yeah, a cool. riveting experience for the people who come to watch it. And it is definitely a new frontier in theater. And I'm so excited to be a part of it in the Southeast region of the United States. Perfect. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. One more thing. I am SoFlo Weird Show. Okay. Oh, okay. So <laughs> we need to like touch on uh, uh, South Florida because you are here, you are performing here. Totally. What makes like South Florida here like the perfect breeding ground for stories and, and, and theater and entertainment in general? You know, 
South Florida, for some reason or another, never felt perfectly in line with the traditional theater culture around the country. And I think that that could be detrimental in some people's eyes, but it could also be a great gift and a blessing because it's forged its own culture. And we're still building that culture. And this place, particularly being the port of the Americas, being, you know, or all these stories intertwined and intersected differently, the classes mixed here like they don't in other places, um, all of that breeds great stories. And thank goodness for Juan and Juan's love for public transit, which I share now, because he goes through the entire city and really listens. And if you just listen, it is speaking to you all the time. Wow, that's awesome. Oh, thank you, Jim. Thank, thank you. you so much. That was June Raven Romero talking about Miami Motel Stories North Beach, along with producers Tanya Bravo and Natasha Bravo of the Juggernaut Theater Company. For more information on Miami Motel Stories, go to JuggernautTheaterCompany.com. Coming up, more twisted tales of Florida's past, right after this short message. What's going on, everybody? This is Jason Lawrence. And Nicole Potter. And we are the Nomadic Traveler Podcast. Our show is about getting out of your house, off of all that technology, and out experiencing life. Catch us at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every Friday on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, and anywhere else you can find excellent podcasts. Next up, we have our favorite crime expert and legal eagle, Chris Mancini, who tells us more sordid tales of corruption, murder, and the mob in Miami Beach. But first, I asked him to give me the lowdown on the Jungle Inn. It was basically a log cabin that they had blown out in size, added a porch to, and the critical feature at the Jungle Inn, of course, was the upstairs gambling hall. So if you went into the Jungle Inn and you knew the password or you knew the bouncers, they would escort you upstairs to where the roulette wheel was. And the roulette wheel, obviously, roulette wheels back in the 1920s, one of the major means by which gambling took place. You're not talking about the casinos of today when you're talking about these roadhouse inn type places. Those roulette wheels actually brought about the fall of many a politician because when the places would be raided, they would grab the roulette wheel and then the cops would be pressured or the judge would be pressured to return it to the crooks. So that was always <laughs> going on back in the 20s because there just weren't enough roulette wheels in Miami. But anyway, so the... Jungle Inn was basically that. It was like so many of the speakeasies of the time. It was a place where you could go and drink. You know, it was a place where you could go and gamble. And it was a place where you would seen and be seen and make deals if that was something else that you wanted to do. But the but the location of it was kind of discreet. Right. It was kind of hidden. So it, it, it kind of went under the radar it, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it was. It was right by the House of Refuge. It was right by the Rescue Center down there. So, And if you looked at it, you would think, oh, there's a freaking dump. When are they going to tear that down? <laughs> You know, but it was busy at night. And and discreetly, they would give you either ginger ale or lemonade, oh, yeah. but right, we right. know that isn't well, that's what it, it was. That, that was the whole story during Prohibition. My grandfather used to tell me stories about going into a place called Rockies, and he would order a glass of grape juice. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Right. So <laughs> exactly. that was how it was done in them days. So um, in the in the North Beach area, in the 79th Beach area, that yeah. was kind of like a mob-controlled area, wasn't it? That was, uh, well, 79th Street was always in play. It was a place to go, to be seen, 
you know, to make the scene, to get out at night, take your girlfriend, your bimbo, whatever you were going out with, your wife, if, if you're really in trouble. And, of course, it was uh, the place to go and get the best Italian food in town. Dino, Dean Martin once owned a restaurant there called Dino's. His bodyguard, Jilly Rizzo, whose mother was always getting arrested, and she had a carpeted and colored television set in her cell at the Dade County Jail. I mean, this was, <laughs> this was, this was how things were done on, on 79th Street Causeway. There was the Top Draw Club. There was um, uh, a place for steak. And, of course, a place for steak is one of those infamous restaurants where a mob hit was actually carried out in uh, American history. Tell, tell us about that. Well, Tony the Tuna, or Tony Altamura, was in a big battle back in the day with a guy by the name of Tony Esperti. And it was a struggle for turf, just like so many uh, mob guys did. There was an old fiction that I used to read where Miami was always open territory and nobody nobody controlled Miami. Anybody could come in and do that. It was all bullshit. Anybody, you know, they were struggling for places uh, that they would get uh, kickbacks from, extortion money from. They were struggling for places where they could operate out of. And so turf, a turf war caused Tony Esperti to walk up to Tony Altamura and put two in his head. <laughs> According to the uh, medical examiner, it made a beautiful hole. <laughs> of course it did. Right. And that was in 1967. Yes, I believe it was. Yeah. So the 60s, the yeah. 70s, the 70s was hot. You know, it was always the mob. You know, they were, they were, they did have the advantage of Miami still being overwhelmed from the, um, uh, the fall of uh, Batista in in Cuba and the rise of the mob in Havana and the correlation between casino activity in Miami and casino activity in Havana. So you see this kind of like cross-pollinization, a bee flying with, with money one way and bringing back the dirty money the other way. And so the 79th Street Causeway played a role in that. Lansky and his bunch more or less worked wolfies and the restaurants along the beach a little bit but that's just a stone's throw away right the old jockey club all those restaurants all those places were very close to one another so it was like bees pollinating the flowers <laughs> right. let's go over here let's go over there what about the famous restaurant the forge since you're talking about the 70s the forge is a great example of that mm-hmm. the only place in town as a U.S. attorney, I ever got thrown out of. <laughs> I walked in one day to do something like serve a subpoena or talk to somebody, and they told me they were having a meeting and they couldn't talk to me then. Man, nobody treated U.S. attorneys like that in those days. <laughs> so that was kind of an indication to me that these guys thought that they were something special. Why did the Forge think it was something special? Well, because the Forge was something special. I mean, 1977, uh, Lansky's, Meyer Lansky's uh, stepson gets, gets into an argument uh, Richard Schwartz gets into an argument with a friend of his named Teriaka over a $10 bill over <laughs> who's entitled to the $10 wow. remains on the bar. And so Schwartz does what people do when they're comfortable in their surroundings. And they don't think anybody's going to rat them out. He pulls out a 38 and blows Teriaka away right there in the restaurant. You just don't oh do God. that at, at uh, you know, McDonald's or Denny's. So it kind of an indication of what's going on. And it wasn't too long after that. The Terry, that Schwartz himself was shotgunned to death at another restaurant nearby. 
in retaliation for what he had done to Terry. Oh my God, there's a so lot of t- mob hits in yeah, restaurants yeah. where they have their last well, not meal. Not that many, not yeah. that many, but enough to make you understand that this was a special place. This is a bubble. Mm-hmm. All these places are bubbles. They exist within their own kind of existence. You're expected to dress a certain way. You're expected to go out and be seen. You're expected to spend a lot of money at the restaurants. You're expected to to make your deals. So everybody knew 79th Street Causeway. Even the Canadians were there. No one ever thinks a Canadian organized crime much, but we've always had a Canadian organized crime presence in South Florida. And that's not just the people's gambling on shuffleboard at Century Village. <laughs> yeah, right. I am okay. talking about real Canadians, drug dealers, quaaludes. Wow. All the quaaludes in the United States back in that era, the 70s, 80s, came from Canada. That's where they were manufactured. And most of it was brought down, believe it or not, for distribution throughout the United States to the top draw club. Going, right there on 79th Street Crossway. Going back to Prohibition, because I feel like it kind of started with Prohibition and mm-hmm. Al Capone. So Al, Al Capone comes down here right? really because of Prohibition, right? Al Capone comes down here because he knows he can corrupt the place. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover was a remarkably full of shit person, but he knew how mobsters acted. And if you understand the rules of the game, if you want to call it that, you understand that the primary thing any mobster wants is a pliable politician, a cop that's on the take, Mm -hmm. somebody that he can buy off or go into business with so that he can carry out his dirty dealings. So that's really the first prerequisite of any mob move. That's why the Chicago mob moved down to Miami. They got kicked out of L.A., believe it or not. And they I feel came to like Miami. I feel like we've been a magnet down here. We always I mean, have been. Whether it's New York, whether yes. it's Chicago, you know, they come we down here. We have been. We have been, but that's for very good reasons. There's no mystery to this. Just people don't really think about it. You're talking about 1928. You're talking about Capone. You're talking about the Depression. You're talking about Prohibition. You put all those elements together. Da da. Yeah. You got Miami. Yeah. Right. You got corrupt exactly. cops. You got an atmosphere in which. Uh, the Great Depression was kicking people's uh, in the butt. They were people were losing their livelihoods. People were starving. Not here. You also have a direct link to rum with the and ocean we here. Got the, we got we're the, right off the coast of the Bahamas and know, everything. The most famous Perfect. smuggler at that time was the guy that invented the saying, "The real McCoy." Yeah, the Remember? real McCoy. Bill McCoy. Yeah. I mean, you know, we. But it's none of this is by accident. It goes mm-hmm. back to the foundational question: Can I corrupt the local officials? Now. Ask yourself, if we have since that time had a history of waves of crime that have paid for certain individuals, what is it that's been in common, what has been the common element, common denominator between the 1920s to today? Corrupt officials. And this is the essential problem with South Florida. Wow. We don't look, we don't pay enough attention. You're talking about the snowbirds who come down, want to spend their three months in the condo, Mm -hmm. people who don't have a stake in the place. They're not stakeholders. And because of that, because we have lo- such low voter turnout, right? Yeah. And then so we it's have still, it's, st- it, it's still prevalent today. It's yeah. not like the mob is oh, gone. No, it's never gone. It's it never will gone. never go. Right. It will never go. You know, you have to remember things like we don't even have a commercial bribery statute in the state of Florida. That's because the legislature doesn't want one. We have an ethics code with no teeth to it in the state legislature because the legislature doesn't want one. So these, none of this is by accident. All this is by design. This was an eye-opener. Like, I knew this, but this article that you gave me, um, Elliot Roosevelt says the mob doesn't run this town. He was the Miami Beach mayor. He says the mob owns owns it. it, That's right. Right? And then it it goes on to say that they own almost 
all of it with like 99 year leases on a lot of the It was called the Minnesota hotels. Syndicate. 99 the, year lease? That's Minnesota, ridiculous. Yes, but remember, World War II comes along. The government and the people of the United States are busy fighting the Nazis. We're not paying attention to the mob. The mob's continuing to make money. Now, what do you do with all that money? Well, let's buy Miami Beach. And that's exactly what they did. They bought the whole thing, every single resort, every single hotel. The, um, one member of the Minnesota uh, Syndicate or another owned everything up and down Collins Avenue, Ocean Drive, all of it. I mean, the Fountain Blue, the, Fountain Blue. the Sagamore, all, <laughs> the, the, all the big look hotels. Look at the checkered criminal history of the Fountain Blue. You know, oh, my God. Yeah. But that's that's Florida. That's Florida. That's why I love it. Yeah, I love it, too. I, that's if why you I understand love it, too, it's kind of like, golly, this is fun. This is interesting. Yeah. It's never boring. No. <laughs> no. And the people are, are interesting. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. That was Chris Mancini, our resident crime expert, giving us further insight into the Sunshine State's shady past. Now we take a look at the story behind a very curious residence in New Smyrna Beach. Speculation has it that the mob, the CIA, or perhaps a drug lord built it. It is known as the Mafia House. This is an excerpt from Charlie Carlson's book, Weird Florida. The Mafia House Long before condominiums popped up in southern New Smyrna Beach, a lone house was built on 127 acres of sand dunes overlooking the ocean. This was in 1969, when southern New Smyrna was a remote area. People began wondering why anyone would want to build a house there, and soon the rumor mill got going. The strange house covered six thousand square feet and was like a fortress with double-pane bulletproof windows, armored-plated doors, 10-inch thick steel-reinforced concrete walls, and a helicopter landing pad on top. If that was not enough, there were machine gun mounts on the roof and an underground shooting range. The house sat on pilings and had two electrically operated drawbridges and an elevator that could lift a vehicle. Locals could take their pick of rumors about the unsociable owner. Some claimed he was a member of the Mafia. Others said that he was the son of a wealthy doctor, or that he was a rich oil company executive. The truth is, no one really knew much about him until April 20, 1970, when he was found dead in the sand dunes and identified as 44-year-old John Mater of Mount Vernon, New York. Newspaper accounts reported that he had been driving a tractor in the dunes when it tipped over on a 15-foot slope and his head was crushed. But near his body were a nickel-plated pistol and three spent bullet casings. Inside the house, the authorities discovered several cases of ammunition, some anti-aircraft artillery shells, and several guns. An inquest ruled his death to be accidental, but Mater's strange ending only added to the mystery. The house has been dubbed the Mafia House by locals, who often use it as a landmark when giving directions. Go past the Mafia House two miles, or on the beach in front of the Mafia House. Over the past decades, this once remote area has been built up with new beach houses and high-rise condominiums. It's a little difficult to find the house now, but it is still there, standing between two high-rise buildings. 
Several previous owners and renters have reported seeing the ghost of Mater flitting through the house. There is still no solid connection between the house and the mafia or other nefarious operations. Then again, there wouldn't be, would there? Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com or give us a call at 754-202-3207. If you want more Strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson. Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance, Ingrid Hernandez, our SoFlo Weird contributor, and publicist Lisa Pally. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.